0: Yeah, like yeah, it's all about perspective, I guess. And you're right. Yeah. Like when we're in that in sort of the deeper area of the ne- like depression phase or the anxiety phase or the negative phase, like the deeper place, it's a lot harder for the positive shit to penetrate. Yeah. So
1: that makes I sense. do feel like this year is like particularly hard to get mm. away from a bit like to I don't know, enjoy the nice stuff. Um yeah. but also can be a hormonal if you're like PMSing, you're not going to be, <laughs> yeah. going to be like, fuck this. I
0: <laughs> mean, oh, yeah, there's no way, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, my therapist was like, uh, like last session, she was like, um, after 10 minutes of me talking, she's like, are you like in the time of the month? <laughs> and I'm like, no.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. I always want to say no, even though sometimes I am. Yeah. It's like, that's the thing that our society and most men don't understand is like when women go through PMS, it's like we have a mental breakdown. It's literally, we have a mental breakdown every single month and it takes a lot of awa- self awareness, a lot of work to be able to do anything, to be able to go grocery shopping, to go to work, to answer an email, to answer a phone call or a text message. It takes so much to not like fucking go insane i don't think people understand that you don't right? understand. yeah it's they don't so understand funny. and all they want to do is make fun of us for it be like is it that time of the month because that's easy for them but it's not easy for us for people who have uterus who have a uterus and who go through this every single month it's not easy it's very very difficult and painful yeah. and i feel and like
1: it's very mm, when you forget there it's like the, you forget that it's a cycle thing and you're like yes huh, well my boobies hurt <laughs> yeah huh, and it's why not do i want to kill everyone
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it happens so fast right it's like it's like okay like my let's say period last my period lasts about five days after five days it's over right and then i start to feel better one week passes that week is good second week comes and it's like okay third week it's suddenly it starts again And then that, and then the week after you get it. And so those two weeks you're fucked. So technically women only get two weeks out of the month where they feel really great. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I just, I feel like all of us should get two weeks off Off. every single month. (laughs) Yeah. Paid leave, paid sick leave every single month. Yeah. We should, we deserve it. It's like, if society wants us to have babies and take care of them, it's like give us two weeks off every single month the moment we start menstruating. That should be a law, a universal law.
1: Yeah, I think we're, we're really close to get that. <laughs> <laughs> think about right. how the conversation is going. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> All
0: right, let me ask you some flashcard questions.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, what is this for? What am I doing? What's oh, happening? Yeah.
0: This is a show called Coffee Prince and uh, it came out I think 2007 Um, and it's considered like a positive queer show for like Korean TV dramas Um, and yeah it is it's got some positive queerness but it's also got some negative queerness so um, it's a complicated show I'm glad it's out there but you know all it does is make us realize that um, we can celebrate some queer happiness and there's a lot of queer, progressive work to do. So let me ask you some flashcard questions based on this show. Okay, let's say you're a young woman in her early 20s and you have short hair, right? Oh my God. <laughs> and your name is Eun Chan, cool Chan, okay? You have short hair, you wear men's clothing and everybody confuses you for a man, all right? They mm-hmm. all think you're a boy. You mm-hmm. live with a younger sister who is in high school and you have a single mother and your father died when you were a teenager. And you meet this man named Che Han He's a very rich brat, like typical rich boy brat. Okay. And uh, he, that guy, he keeps getting set up by his rich grandmother on blind dates with mm-hmm. other rich women because, you know, they want to make their rich dynasty a bigger dynasty. And he wants to get out of these blind dates by tricking women into thinking that he's gay and he asks you to be his partner in crime. What do you do?
1: But I'm a female, right? Yeah. He doesn't know that though. Oh, mm-hmm. mm, what, a tw- what a twist. <laughs> mm. Mm. And how do I feel about him?
0: You just met him. He's just some rich, snobby guy Is he going to give me money? Is
1: yes. there money involved? he pays okay. you
0: per, per date.
1: Oh, and I need this money.
0: Yes, you
1: do. I need it. Mm -hmm. Great. So this works out perfectly. (laughs) So you say yes. I will say yes, but do I have to do sexual stuff?
0: Ah, good question.
1: Because that costs extra.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He pays you based on like pats, like touch on the head or touch on the shoulder. Um, He does kiss you too at one point. With Tammy? as a no 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 as a joke (laughs) as a joke like he's like very happy that he got out of one date so he grabs your face and he kisses you on the mouth like really hard like just as a quote unquote joke and he pays you for all of these physical touches
1: yeah wow what a weird thing and then they fall in love because that's what happens she's like he kissed me as a joke i love him (laughs)
0: he kissed me as a joke but i was not joking (laughs) in my mind i married him (laughs) okay so Uh, you say yes you would go with it
1: well apparently i need the money and um, i already had the look that he's going for and he's going to (laughs) get a surprise when he sees my pants but
0: (laughs) yeah oh that's funny he already has what he's looking for it's like you're his style you're his taste (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's a pig, but <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah, he is He is Rich people are pigs Okay, great So, question number two You're Han-Gyeol, this rich guy now, okay? <laughs> oh, wait, no, no, I'm sorry You're still in chan You're still, you're still the, the tomboy Okay, so Han-Gyeol, the rich guy He doesn't know that you're a woman, right? He thinks you're a man You just don't correct him He just assumes you're a boy You never said you're a boy You just don't correct him and he treats you like a punk kid, younger brother. You know, he's like ah, like very broy. And he tells you that he inherited a coffee shop, mm-hmm. and he revamps it, and he calls it Coffee Prince. And he needs to hire a team to work there, but he's only going to hire men because it's called a co- Coffee Prince, right? And you want the job, you really need it, but he's only hiring men. And you really you really at this point as an employee, you really need to decide whether or not you want to tell them you're a woman or a man. What do you do?
1: Well, I will take the job and then in some point after running the shit out of this coffee place and everyone will be like, This is the best place I ever have coffee. I'll be like, Look at my breast
0: <laughs> Oh my <laughs> God. Jesus. So you just flash yeah. him?
1: No, well I, I wait for him to tell me, Hey, you're being the best employee, thank God that you have a penis. Uh, <laughs> and um I could I couldn't do this without you and thank God I only hire men and blah 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 more piggy, sexy shit and I will be like <laughs> I will be like, Oh cuckoo <laughs>
0: I like how you call sexist men piggies. I think that's <laughs> such a cute way to describe them. You sexist piggy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <I'm quirky. laughs>
0: okay, um, I didn't quite understand your answer, but sure, yeah, let's go with it.
1: Well, the thing is, I will do a great job, and then he—I mean, I will do a great job, and uh, he will be okay. surprised by it. Yeah, and then I will expose my genitalia to him, mm-hmm. and he will be like. He wouldn't change his mind. He will still be against me because I'm a woman, but I prove a point to someone. I don't know.
0: Okay. So it's Maybe more about it's more about showing that women are just as capable as men. Got it. Because Got
1: apparently it. he doesn't know that. What year is this? Two thousand seven. <laughs> oh Two thousand seven.
0: I know. Not that long ago, man. Okay, great. I understand now. Okay. All right. So you're still in Chan, and while you're working with this guy, Han you, of course, start to develop feelings for him, right? Of course. Of course. But <laughs> Han again, Han thinks you're a man. In fact, he really likes you, and he treats you like a close sibling. And one day, he tells you very seriously. He says, you're gay, right? But I'm not. But I want to be close to you. Let's be blood brothers, okay? And yeah, and he fucking pierces your ear. It's really fucking weird. You really want to confess your love to this guy, but you're stuck in this weird predicament because you've been lying to him for months, and you feel guilty. What do you do?
1: I don't get like the the piercing in the ear. Is that?
0: <laughs> it's because he has an earring, and he wants you to have a matching earring. But
1: isn't it? Isn't it also?
0: It is. It's a little creepy. It's absolutely creepy. I agree.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The whole thing is creepy, actually.
1: It is. It's really fucked up. I can't believe it was in two
0: thousand seven. <laughs> yeah, I mean, rich men, rich men. They'll just they'll fucking go all the way. They don't care. They have nothing to
1: lose. Oh, you know what do I do? Um, I will create an alter ego. Mm. I will. I will say that oh, my twin sister is coming. <laughs> This is very soap opera, so, Oprah. Uh, so yeah. I will yeah. be the fake twin sister, so I cannot like, stop lying, apparently I have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so I would just like be like, and then he will have the same feelings, but now to a girl. <laughs> and then, and then every, everything will be weird when he's like, hey, we should invite, invite your brother to the wedding. And I'll be like, uh-uh, <laughs> I didn't think of that. <laughs>
0: Okay, so you would write a whole new script, basically.
1: Yeah. Just... <laughs> didn't they do that in the series? I feel like it's a great <laughs> yeah.
0: They didn't do the twin sister thing. I like the twin sister thing, though. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it <laughs> really raises the stakes. I mean, that goes, like, fucking crazy level. I love it. Yes. All right. Okay, so let's say oh, you're... What?
1: What? Then I fake my... I, I fake the accident of my brother... And then I just leave life as a woman.
0: Your brother had an but accent. I was already.
1: <laughs> no, wait, she, she, men she, have she,
0: an accent different from women?
1: No, accident, accident. Sorry, oh, I accident, have an accent. Accident, <laughs> accident. Yes. Oh, so you kill him off. Yes.
0: Wow.
1: You're and then at some point, he's like, wait, but you also have a piercing. And I'm like, oh no, he's fine out. <laughs> you know, let's hope.
0: Wow. I think you should have written this show, yes, <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, great, all right, all right, all right, so let's say you're Hungarian now, you're the rich guy, okay, you're the rich guy, you're very strangely attracted to this Unchan guy, okay, but you know you're not gay, you've never had gay feelings towards any man before in your life, okay, but you're very weirdly drawn to him, and he's a man.
1: What do you do? Oh, uh, well, I guess if i was this guy i will want a woman to feel (laughs) empowered this guy or you i'm channeling this guy i think i will rent a boat a big yacht no i'm pretty sure my family has a yacht forget about that (laughs) and i will just invite a bunch of i want to call bitches because i feel that that's how he talks about women um and a bunch of bitches Oh, I can invite Leo DiCaprio. I don't know if he was doing that as well in that. Yeah. <laughs> and then I will fuck a bunch. And then I will do all that. And, and I will be like, oh, I feel much better now. And then, you know, yeah. she comes along. Yeah. The the boy that I'm trying to. And then I'm like, oh, no, I still want to suck his dick. <laughs>
0: So you did all that yacht renting and fucking women for nothing. Yeah. And then he's like, oh boy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> walk, walk, walk.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like I ate out at all these bitches, but technically I wanted your cock in my mouth. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, it will be great if we have like a sauna scene. Mm-hmm. When he, mm. she's like, oh no, he's going to find out. He's like, I oh. want to see his dick, you know? Jesus. Okay. <laughs> Does that
0: happen? Uh, no, that's in your fantasy, uh, my friend.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love my seriousness.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's so good. I want to see it. Okay. So let's say you're a man. <clears throat> you're a guy named Che Han Hung. You're a different guy. You're this big shot music producer okay and you used to date a really hot woman named yuju who is a big shot painter super famous okay and she broke up with you years ago moved to new york to live with some other guy some other rich guy and one day she just shows up in seoul at your house and she says she wants to be with you again what do you do (laughs)
1: <laughs> Why does she want to be with me? <laughs> just changed her mind, felt like she missed you. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, she has something, she, something's happening. <laughs> What's happening? Am I a good person?
0: You're a really nice guy, yeah. And when yeah. this woman left you, you were really heartbroken and, you know, angry. Oh, I guess yeah. if
1: I'm a nice guy, I guess I'm a bit dumb-dumb. No, but do I love myself? Do I love a little bit <laughs> <of myself? laughs>
0: I don't know, ask yourself that as as this character. That's a good question, That do I love myself? Wow, so profound. You're so profound today. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) 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 (laughs)
1: Um, hmm. I don't know. I just feel like I just I can I I cannot stop picturing Mariah Carey. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. For, for some reason, I'm just like picturing her. <laughs> and I don't want to go back to her. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say, no, I'm not going back.
0: <laughs> Perfect answer. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. This bitch is being a Mariah. Yeah, She can go fuck herself, all right?
1: No, I think Mariah is great if she's watching this. Oh, my God, <laughs> I love
0: Mariah. But, you know, Mariah a deep yeah. Right, if you're listening to this, you're a diva.
1: Okay. Yeah, no, but she's. Uh, someone asked her a question. It's like, so you had a meltdown, breakdown, and she's like, "No, I had a diva moment." <laughs> ah!
0: <laughs> amazing, amazing answer. So every month for two weeks, we all bitches have diva moments. moments. That's all it is.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. you use a diva cup. Ah! ah! <laughs> the full story. It's a full circle of. <laughs>
0: <laughs> very, very good. I love that. I love that. Yes. Okay. So yeah. you're still this music producer guy, okay?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: This, this young woman named Eunchan, the, the woman that everybody thinks is a man, this very cute young lady named Eunchan, she delivers milk to your house every morning. She's really cute. <laughs> She's really fun, really lovely, okay? And you start developing feelings for her. But your girlfriend, Yuju, that painter Mariah lady, she tells you, she sees what's happening and she tells you not to go too far with her, okay? And one day you end up kissing Unchan on the lips and your girlfriend catches you in the act. What do you do?
1: Well, I tell myself I'm an idiot. <laughs> also, also it, was it um, a consensual case? Because ah, very she's good. like delivering milk. Yeah. She's a little cool. milk. She's just doing a job. She's just mm. being nice, getting me my milk. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, ooh, who else has milk? I don't think he's a nice guy. You're
0: right. He's not. He's he's a uh a, a sh- like wolf in sheep's clothing. That's what he is, yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, um, I know those people.
0: And and the kiss was not consensual. Very good question. He just <gasps> oh, forced gosh. kissed his face when she was least expecting it. He just forced his face onto her face and smooched her. And she ran I out think of this, ran out of there.
1: I think these two women should beat him up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Together.
1: Yeah, and leave him like on a I don't know therapy bored or something (laughs) and then throw the milk at him.
0: (laughs) Drown him in a bath of milk. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. I like that answer. All right, all right. Final question. You are han now, the the CEO guy, the president guy, all right, the douchebag, the rich douchebag. Your girlfriend, no, I'm sorry, your friend, a friend of yours, tells you that Eunchan is actually a woman and that she lied to you about her gender for months. Meanwhile, you went through all this mental and emotional agony, questioning your sexuality because of your attraction towards Inchan, questioning everything about yourself and willing to still pursue this person as a close friend, quote unquote, even though you thought she was a man and you feel so betrayed. What do you do?
1: Well, I feel like, I mean, this is not what's going to happen, but I feel like in those moments he should have a bunch of flashbacks of all the times that he called her with like masculine pronouns or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, she didn't lie to me. She just just was really nice and agreed with me. Mm. (laughs) She's the best. (laughs)
0: Okay, so you would you would get yourself over it by doing this positive reinforcement thing.
1: Yeah, but that's not going to happen. He's going to go <laughs> to her and be like, "You little bitch!" <laughs> and she's like, "Oh no!" <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, great answer. All right, thank you, Julieta. Welcome to K Drama School. I'm your host, Grace Jung, and class is now in session. dates to announce so wednesday september 1st i will be at the yard theater 7 p.m i'm gonna be there in an unusual way but my presence will be there i assure you okay it's the cold ass fuck comedy show which is a variety show that i am co-producing and co-hosting with kristen lundberg and if you don't know who kristen lundberg is look her up she is epically hilarious she is brilliant she's genius and this is a comedy variety show that we're gonna be co-hosting every month. So first Wednesday of every month. So we're gonna do it again in October, again in November, and then we'll see how it goes from there. But it's gonna be a really fun show. Uh, it's gonna include stand-up comedy, drag performances. We're gonna have clowns, but not the scary kinds, okay? We're gonna have musicians. And Kristen brings an ice sculpture to every show, cause she is, an ice sculptor, that's what she does. And at the end of the show, everybody gets to smash the ice sculpture on the ground and it's a very cathartic feeling, it's awesome. So please go to the art theater Wednesday, this is in LA, okay, Wednesday, 7 p.m. And if you're looking for the Eventbrite ticket link, it's on my website at hj.com, okay? On Thursday, September 2nd, I will be at the Arcadia Bar in Astoria, Queens, 8pm. It's a bar show. It's free. So if you're in New York, please feel free to come. It should be a good time. On Friday, September 3rd, I will be at the Tiny Cupboard in Brooklyn, 730. I want to read you a fan letter that I received from Dr. Mansa. Okay. Dear Dr. Jung, I have been listening to episode 32 of your podcast on Reply 1988, and I'm quite excited. I enjoyed your conversation about race. Jovan Hutch is great. I didn't know about him prior to seeing him on your show. I am a 67-year-old Ghanaian woman, a former professor of sociology, now retired, and I discovered K-drama by chance at the beginning of the pandemic when I subscribed to Netflix. I am totally in love with K-drama. I'm into rom-coms and romantic dramas. It is interesting how K-drama is selling Korea to the rest of the world. I have heard there are several Korea files in Ghana as a result, but I don't know any. I don't care for k Pop, but i do appreciate the original soundtracks of some of the shows that i watch i wish you would look at the more recent dramas like dear my friends nabilera or love alarm i also wonder what you think about so not worth it i did not like han hyun-min's character i think he is sweet and charming but why did they have to make his mother so unconventional and make him poor is it because he is black korean i would be happy if you discussed that show one day By the way, I went to university in Germany in the 70s. Berlin was always a cool place. I did my magister in Heidelberg and PhD in Frankfurt. I went to Ghana in 1985 after my studies and taught at a university here for 30 years. I had a good Korean friend during my time in Germany who I have lost touch with. I have searched high and low on the internet but cannot find her. She told me about the student uprisings and other things. Anyway, I hope to visit Seoul, Busan, and Jeju Island when the pandemic is over. But I'm a little wary because I'm a Black ajumma. Thank you for your podcasts and everything. With respect, Dr. Mansa. Thank you, Professor Mansa, for your email. And I appreciate you mentioning the show, Dear My Friends and Nabilera. I think those are really good shows to cover because they discuss aging in a very frank manner. And the difficulty that a lot of elderly Korean folks face in modern Korean society. I'll be covering Dear My Friends very, very soon. It's one of my favorite shows, and it's written by one of my favorite Korean drama writers, so I appreciate you mentioning it. I think it's really awesome that you got to travel to Berlin in the 1970s. Um, I am a huge fan of Berlin as a city. I just finished Ingmar Bergman's autobiography, Uh, who talks about living in Berlin back in the 1940s, and he paints a really grotesque picture of the city. But I truly love Berlin. I spent 2018 and 2019 there, and I have some really fond memories of that city. I made many great friends in Berlin, and that includes Julieta de who just did the flashcard series. The student uprisings in Korea in the 1970s were pretty huge, and the Korean government killed a lot of their own people for dissenting against the military dictatorship, which was ruling the nation at the time. So even though South Korea was technically a republic, a so-called, you know, democratic nation, after the Korean War, it was run by dictators for many decades. Honestly, like it, it... never stopped, really, honestly. I mean, it's a lot better now, but like even up until the 90s, it was still kind of bad. So all those student protesters back then were really important people. But the unfortunate thing is that all those young student protesters from back then are now the ruling elite in South Korea. Okay, Many of them abandon their beliefs in democracy. A lot of them live comfortable bourgeois lives. They have a lot of institutional power. They have money, they have families. Okay, And that's these are things that make people lean very conservative, right? They're on the political right, okay? So this just goes to show that all of us are susceptible to change, right? So we need to remain consistently self-aware we have to make good choices in life and we have to stay on the path towards you know healing goodness wisdom all that shit right that's that's what we need to do okay and those are the things that society tells us to remain resistant to so we have to keep i don't know reading and acquiring more knowledge and talking to people acquire more wisdom all that all that stuff right Okay. Today's show is Coffee Prince. It's a 2007 drama written by Yi Sun-mi, who is actually a romance novelist. Okay. So Yi Sun-mi wrote about 10 works of fiction. They're mostly romantic comedies. And this is the most famous and well-known of her uh, works of fiction because it became a hit TV show in 2007. The show is also unique in that a Korean woman directed it. Okay, Very few Korean dramas are directed by women. They're almost always directed by men, although the majority of them are written by women, which of course is now changing right now that, you know, South Korea is like being sought after for all their content, like all these fucking network executives are trying to hire male screenwriters over female TV writers who were there. <laughs> Right. So that's starting to change. So Yoon Jung is the director of this drama. And when I was living in New York in 2011, I recall some of my MFA candidate friends at Columbia University's film program telling me that they were in classes with her or meetings with her. So she was getting her MFA at Columbia Film School. Um, I believe she was getting her master's. Yeah. So she was around. She was in New York. So that's kind of cool. Coffee Prince is the show that made Yoon eun and Gong Yu very, very famous. Yoon eun was already kind of famous before because she's a K-pop star, right? She's a K-pop idol. She was part of the group Baby Vox. Okay, so... If you grew up in the 90s early 2000s you would know who baby Vox is and she appeared in a lot of studio korean variety game shows with other k-pop stars in the late 90s and early 2000s so she was kind of a household name already and Gong Yoo was not as famous as yoon Eun-hae, but this show made him a hallyu star right he was all over the world all over the place and I mean, that's the reason why Goblin is such a big hit, right? It's because Kung Yu was this household name. Coffee Prince is most commonly cited as the queer K-drama. And if you listen to episode 12 of this podcast, you'll hear me saying that Coffee Prince is indeed a queer show, but there are many other shows that have out-queered this one in the last few years. Okay, so Coffee Prince is a good text to look at as a queer show for queer pleasure, but it's also a queer text that creates queer upset. If any of you are into queer theory and feminist theory, I'd strongly recommend the book, uh, Female Masculinity by Jack Halberstam, which they wrote when they were still going by the name Judith Halberstam. And it's a classic text on how to read queered female portrayals in film and literary texts and here's a good quote by Halberstam. The tomboy movie threatened an unresolved gender crisis and protected or predicted butch adulthoods. There is always the dread possibility, in other words, that the tomboy will not grow out of her butch state and will never become a member of the wedding. Tomboys do not bond. They do not rebel. They do not learn. They do not like themselves, and perhaps most importantly, they do not like each other. So, Halberstam asks, where are the contemporary examples of tomboy films today? And it's hard to find them, right? But we increasingly find non-gender binary characters in films and TV shows in Hollywood today, right? This book was written over 20 years ago, back in 1998. And I'd say that Coffee and Prince in part answers this question posed by Halberstam about 10 years after this book, Female Masculinity, is published. So you have Go Chen, who is a young woman in her early 20s. She has short hair. She dresses in loose clothing. She frequently gets, gets misconstrued as a man, but she usually never corrects anybody who calls her a man, okay? Anybody who assumes that she's a boy, she doesn't correct them. She has a single mother at home and a younger sister in high school who she takes care of by working multiple part-time jobs every single day. Okay. She is the family kajang and kajang means head of household in Korean. It's usually tied to this patriarchal figurehead like the father who is often looked upon as the breadwinner, right? But in Inchan's case, there is no father because he died when she was a teenager. So she took on this onus as the kajang, right? This role in part is what makes Chan so masculine. So we see that gender is a social construct and a performance through In-chan's character, right? This is where Judith Butler's theory on gender performance comes in. She wrote Gender Trouble, which is a very influential book that came out in 1990. I recommend it to anybody who's interested in reading the fundamentals of gender theory and queer theory. But we can see through In-chan that gender is not only a costume through her clothing and haircut, but it's also a performance, right? Unchan's constantly channeling masculinity because of her association with breadwinning as a male role so there's some internalized sexism there but i can also look at this another way for instance when we look at pictures of Unchan as a kid when her father is still alive she was dressed like a boy her hair was short like a boy and the name Unchan is a very gender neutral name in korean it's not it's neither feminine nor masculine eunchan is a gender neutral name. And Unchan, as a person, was a tomboy regardless of the Kajang status. So before her father even passed away, she had this Kajang status. And it's interesting to hear how her younger sister addresses Unchan, right? Calls Unchan oppa a lot, right? So that all of this sort of demonstrates that um, gender is a social construct, it's a performance, it's a costume. Gender is not dictated by genitalia essentially. But what happens? What happens? Unchan falls in love with the man, right? And this makes her change. So when she finally comes out as a woman to the man she loves, who thought she was a guy, she dresses in feminine clothes, she sheds a lot of tears. And then Unchan's mom, when she sees Unchan crying over this guy, she says, oh, my daughter is all grown up. And she's crying over boys. Okay? So this idea of the tomboy growing up or maturing means that she is done being that unconventional deviant. Okay? She is no longer going to be this non-conforming, you know, androgynous figure. She's going to become the typical feminine being that is tied to materialism, aesthetics, whatnot. Okay? So the threat that was posed against society by this tomboy is mediated by the constant potential that the tomboy will eventually grow up and become a woman, not a tom man, or not a butch lesbian, okay? So if you're watching this series, you'll see that that's exactly what ends up happening to Eunchan, okay? So this is where we notice queer upset. Why does female masculinity have to become erased? Why can't it remain consistent? Unchan ultimately comes out as a woman and Unchan is in love with a man. So we have heteronormativity, right? Had the show allowed Unchan to remain a tomboy, it would have leaned a lot closer towards queer liberation and queer pleasure because ultimately there's nothing wrong with being a lesbian or trans, right? The other major queerness from this show is how Gong Yoo's character, Han Gyeol, falls in love with Unchan while assuming that Unchan is a man. So Hangyeol initially treats Inchan like a younger brother, calls him a punk, teases him, wrestles him, right? But then Hangyeol starts to develop feelings for Inchan and he starts questioning his own sexuality, which he had never done before in his life. So we see queer potential for queer pleasure here, but the queer upset occurs when Hangyeol goes to a psychiatrist believing that his gay love is a mental disability, right? And the show's mise-en-scène in that scene when he's at the doctor's office, is very negative. And it not only is homophobic, but it stigmatizes mental illness, which is already a big issue in South Korea. This show came out in 2007, so it's a little bit dated, but I don't think that excuses the homophobia and the ableism that the show entails. There's a scene when han says to Inchan after wrestling her in bed, in this playful fight or whatever, he stops and very intensely says to her, you're gay, right? But I'm not. But let's take this as far as we can, right? So he's suggesting queer love here. instead of having sex with Inchando, what Han-Kiel, what Hanyar does is he pierces Inchan's ear to match his own earring. and he tells Inchan that they can be blood brothers. Okay? This scene is highly suggestive of queer physical intimacy. It's like a gay cherry popping, right? Also, the single earring carries some queer weight as well. It's a deliberate choice on Han-Gyeol's part to use their brotherhood as a masquerade for their queer love. Okay? I felt like this scene was the queerest scene of all. Like, I haven't seen a scene like this in Korean TV dramas that sort of outqueers this particular scene. Although there are other narratives of queerness in contemporary K-dramas that I would say outqueers this one. Okay, so today I talked to a former undergraduate professor of mine, Dr. Mark Hussey, who is now Professor Emeritus of Pace University's English department as of tomorrow, I believe. Dr. Hussey is a world-renowned wolf scholar. And funny story about that is when I told a friend that my college professor is a wolf scholar, he was like, oh my god, that's so awesome that he studies wolves. And I was like, no, no, I mean like Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf is a very influential feminist figure for me personally because I read her book Three Guineas when I was in undergrad. And it's a book that woke up the feminist in me. So it's a very critical book and she's an important figure to me. Dr. Hussey edited and annotated the Virginia Woolf series published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. He wrote the foreword to the book on being ill, written by Wolf, which was published along with notes from sick rooms, written by Wolf's mother, Julia Stephen, who was a nurse and who died when Wolf was very young. And Dr. Hussey recently wrote a biographical book on Clive Bell entitled Clive Bell and the Making of Modernism, which was published by Bloomsbury Press, which is very fitting clive bell was part of the bloomsbury group which included figures like virginia wolf like vanessa bell like leonard wolf like em forster and others and they were like this literary group slash artistic salon they were just like a group that hung out and like shared ideas and created theories and talked a lot i mean it, it sounds awesome I, I wish i wish we had more of those things today but I don't know, unfortunately, we just have Twitter and Instagram and other bullshit. Clive Bell was an art critic and a painter, and he was Virginia Woolf's brother-in-law and husband to Woolf's sister, Vanessa Bell. And there is no deep dive biographical research text on Clive Bell. So Dr. Hussey wrote this book, and it's out now, and you can go and find it. Dr. Hussey is not only a great scholar and researcher, but he's also a really great teacher, and I congratulate him for officially retiring as of tomorrow. And I want to extend not only my congratulations on completing this milestone and closing this chapter, but also for beginning a new one as a full-time researcher and scholar. I wish you the best of luck. I do have to mention that the professors at Pace University in the English department are pretty much responsible for you know, me being a writer today, honestly. Like 15 years ago when I was... Uh, taking poetry classes and essay classes and writing a lot and reading a lot in college, like a lot of these professors gave me the feedback and the encouragement and support that I needed, you know, in order to really, um, I don't know, muster the courage to be to become a writer, to become an artist. Okay, so I think um, our teachers are invaluable in that respect, and we should really. Um, take the time to appreciate them and offer them our respect and recognition, right? Because good teachers are not only life-changing and life-affirming, but I would say they're also life-saving. Like I was supremely depressed when I was in college. I was thinking about suicide every single day, and I was drinking a lot. I was drinking almost every single night. The only thing that I had full control over was my studies somehow like I really stayed on top of that and the professors their compassion their patience and their willingness to be a good mentor to me like that's really what kept me surviving during that period so um, I would say all the academic achievements that I've made and the creative writing achievements I have made are in part um, due to their fine work as teachers. So shout out to Pace University's English department. there have been a lot of those like Zoom conferences, Zoom. I mean, what do you think of that? Do you prefer the Zoom conferences or do you prefer the in-person ones? Uh,
2: Well, I prefer the in-person one when it means you're not going to die from COVID.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: But actually the Wolf Conference, which (laughs) last year it was scheduled to be in South Dakota. Yeah. June, so it was canceled clearly gosh um, yeah postponed and then this year it was on zoom and it was remarkable i mean it was on zoom but it still was a full four-day conference Mm -hmm. and everyone felt great and we had Mm -hmm. people from all over the world and
0: yeah uh,
2: it just i mean apart from at the end of the day wanting to just go out for a drink with everyone right just had a really good energy and um i think by now we're also used to it
0: I think so too. I think um, the Zoom conferences are going to continue because I, I was able to participate in a workshop in Australia via Zoom. You know, yeah. so I think that's changing I a lot. I mean, of that things. is the
2: great thing about there was I was doing a session and I said, "Good afternoon," and then immediately the chat filled up with like, "Well, actually, it's early morning here in mm. South Africa," and like here in Australia, and right. like.
0: <laughs> right, right, right.
2: But it was, uh, but that is, I mean, like, I zoomed into people's classes for, in California, right. which I would mm-hmm. never have been able to, you know, do before. Yes. So that's one silver lining.
0: That is, and it's a big one, because it also has to do with, like, equity, too, you know, like, mm-hmm. right. I, you know, per conference, I'll spend a minimum, minimum of $1,000, minimum. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, uh, you know can I go to like as many conferences as I would like, you know? It's
2: actually the, the people, well, the main person who was organizing the conference and then three other people got together and they, every month they have what they call a wolf salon. And Mm. it's, and it's kind of structured in the sense that it will sometimes have a, a reading in common or a couple of presenters, but it's otherwise very open and that's been amazing cuz it's 2 hours on a friday yeah and people from about probably 16 or 17 countries sign in and
0: wow. usually about
2: 70 to 100 people and we just it's just a really great energy really
0: sustaining
2: really yeah. for a lot of people like you know someone in brazil who said her her country's in such a terrible state it's been just great to kind of check in <laughs> every so often with y- yes. other people so and i yeah, yeah you're right it's it's uh enabled many more people to participate than mm-hmm. in normal times.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was able to sit in, like, in a lot of those things during the, well, we're still in the pandemic, but especially last year when, you know, f- I felt really cooped up and, you know, intellectually kind of like not stimulated at all. And, I, you know, it sometimes you get so tired and depressed, you don't even want to sit and open a book, you know, you just yeah. kind of want to hear oh, yeah. people talk and, um, yeah. Like I got to hear a lot of really amazing people speak on really astounding projects. And that's been the upside of this whole thing. Yeah.
2: And actually, I mean, a lot of cultural institutions like museums did amazing programming during the mm-hmm. lockdown. So mm-hmm. you could, you could like, there was something, I think it was the Frick in New York did cocktails mm-hmm. with a curator every uh-huh. month and you could just yeah. sign in and someone would be talking about a piece of art. And that, like you said, it, it, it was so isolating for so many people that it was great to even virtually just feel like there are people out there who
0: are
2: interested in ideas.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I mean, that's like the, this is the future that, you know, so many people had predicted, right? Like in (laughs) sci-fi or in like a dooms, like a doomsday philosophical way, like, but um, there is there is an upside to it, as you know. There there are also downsides to it. Like Zoom bombing has been, you know, fucking horrific, and mm. um, like Zoom stand up comedy has also been horrific. Like it's like what? Oh, like, that mom- must
2: be really difficult. Yeah, I forgot that it's, you were doing that.
0: Yeah, it's it's another thing. Because
2: you can only hear one person at a time.
0: Yeah, or they all just mute all their mics, and you just have to deal with. Uh, just talking to yourself, except there are people (laughs) tuning it. So A laugh track. Yeah, like, I don't know. We've become socially, um, I I guess, you know, I'll just say we've expanded socially or like our social things that felt weird before are now like like an everyday thing, you know? Like when I, let me ask you, when you were buying that headset, for instance, you know, like, did you go through any kinds of hurdles mentally to buy that? Or was it just like, oh, I just need this as a practical purchase?
2: I think it was that, yeah, I mean, it, I suddenly, like everyone, the, the lockdown began kind of right at our spring break. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I was teaching for six weeks in the classroom. And then there was a lot of talk. And then, Spring break happened and Pace sent an email saying, you know, we're going to extend work remotely for one week and then we'll all come back. Uh-huh. And I remember I emailed the president and I said, OK, so what is it you know that none of the other universities in the whole tri-state area know because they're all shutting down <laughs> for the rest of the year? And then, like, of course, they said, yes, we're shut down. So I taught just with my laptop. Yes. And my you know, it was really a mess. I mean it was it was okay, but it was kind of on the on the fly. And then yeah. and then I thought, oh, I should really get myself set up properly. So I like reorganized my whole office because I've actually changed the orientation of my office so I have this nice book background. Mm-hmm. Whereas before <laughs> it was like strewn with mess in my armchair and a window and I had no <laughs> idea what to do. So then I and I just went yeah. online and ordered this thing. And then yeah. I remember, I my my wife's been working remotely, so I said, "Oh, I just want, can I do a test Zoom with you?"
0: Yeah.
2: And I said, "I just want, tell me if there's any difference when I'm using the headset." And then she said, "You mean to tell me your students have been suffering through the, without the headset for all um, for the rest of that semester?" Because she said it is like night and day with the mm-hmm. microphone was so much better. Um, yeah. And my computer is weird because the um. I think the camera, I'm on my, I have a webcam now, but my, wow. oh yeah, my camera, my camera, I have a Dell laptop and the camera,
0: Oh my gosh. I can't remember
2: where they usually are on the top or the bottom of the lid, but mine's the opposite place. So it was, I had to like, I had this box of CDs and a dictionary and it was like precariously balanced right. on my desk so that yes. I could like be in this in the frame for those six weeks of the spring 2020 semester. (laughs) But the students were great because, you know, everyone was going through the same thing. But um, no, I didn't really have any angst about it. But I just, I thought, now, of course, I realize I should have AirPods, but I am very (laughs) anti-Apple, so I don't have any Apple products. That's
0: why you use a Dell, right? Okay, Um, yeah.
2: It's like, you know, I prefer a stick shift. I like a PC. It's like... I like to know what's going <laughs> on.
0: Yeah. No, I see, I never learned how to drive stick shift. I only learned automatic because the car my parents had was an automatic. So whenever I travel, it's like a nightmare because everywhere else in the world, they use stick shift and they right. use military time and they use Celsius. Yeah. So it's like...
2: Oh, I know. I have no idea what that is.
0: Yeah. I,
2: was just, I always get emails from friends in the UK saying, God, God. it is like sweltering here." It's, 28 degrees (laughs) you mean it's below (laughs) freezing
0: right yeah no it's 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 a mind fuck but yeah there are there are advantages to knowing how to drive stick shift um so anyway congratulations on like being a retired professor a professor 18 days 18 days wow i mean but you're are you still teaching it's august you're not teaching no no no
2: yeah, but so, I'm 18 days until I'm officially retired.
0: Oh, really? So they the count you through month. the summer. Wow. Um,
2: it's like August 31st is the end of the fiscal year, mm-hmm. and that's my last paycheck.
0: Wow. How does that feel?
2: Terrifying.
0: Really? <laughs> You're kidding, right? You're lying. Does it really no, feel terrifying?
2: Really, yeah. it. You know, it's, it's, um, it's such an easy uh, – kind of cushion to have an institutional framework where you know I teach and I mean I complain about a lot but it's still a great job because it's you know 16 weeks vacation guaranteed every year although recently in an academic sense recently like in the last two or three years I discovered that we are actually our salaries are for nine months they're not for twelve months. Oh, interesting! And, the reason, and what they do is they kind of—it's almost like they escrow part of your salary each each pay period, so that they can pay you over the summer. But mm. in fact, you're not paid for twelve months of work. I see. It's you're paid for nine months of work. So, interesting. I, I only understood that when I started having to get into whether I could really do this. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's great in in the sense that. I don't have anyone to answer to, and I have you know nothing to prepare and no papers to grade. Um, but it is it it's scary in that it's um, it's unknown. You know, I, I realize that the kind of work I do, I mm-hmm. I can take as long as I like doing it because I know that I have that regular income.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So now I don't have that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I have to think more carefully, and a lot of the things that I would do. Know, like read people's work or write recommendation letters is like of course i'm going to do that that's, i kind of feel like that's part of my job and mm. now i'm thinking oh well i've got to be a little bit more selective about that but mm. i mean i'll still do some of it but um i can't just say yes to everything
0: because right
2: to use my time a bit more productively i mean it's not like i just mm. decided to retire without any plan i mean i, I do of have course. a plan i'm just it's just I never I hate that word retirement because it has this connotation of just going fishing or,
0: the end um, yeah uh-huh.
2: why I just didn't want to teach anymore got it yeah, so I want to do all the other stuff I want to write I want to go to conferences I want to engage with my intellectual community I just yes. don't want to teach marketing majors <laughs> how to read anymore. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah i just i remember when when i was at pace uh like that was your constant complaint it was just like did you guys read it <laughs> like,
2: well it's students... funny i I don't know and she's probably younger than you but there was a student called madison ritland uh-huh.
0: okay I, don't know. Don't she,
2: know her. I she lives in la actually um mm. and she was in new york the other day so she let me know she was coming and we had coffee mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. she was telling me how she used to get so depressed because in an English major, I think it was a Bronte class Mm. and she would come in and everyone would be talking, you know, like, did you read it? No, I didn't read it. Oh. And she said it was, she came into class like really excited to talk about the work and most of the students hadn't read it and they were just hoping they could get away with it. And those are majors. So yeah, it's kind of demoralizing, but. It is. I also just felt like I've kind of lost touch with the point of, Teaching English?
0: Mm, what do you mean?
2: I mean, literally, I'm just not, you know, it's, it's hard. I, I find it hard to, Im- but I can't quite get a grasp of what it, what it means to have that major anymore because it understand. keeps changing
0: yeah.
2: and there are so many things that it's trying to do. Um, and there's a lot going on in the field of composition that I felt very antagonistic toward which I would not want to be broadcast but
0: right right like the well, well that, you know, it's racist what did to you
2: people to write <laughs> standard american english
0: <laughs> i see i see okay okay well what did you think that the english major was when you were you know becoming a professor for it
2: <laughs> well i guess you know when i started which is a long time ago i really thought of it as just a sort of extension of what i'd done which is just you know, reading a lot of books and talking about them and learning how to think uh, critically. And and Mm -hmm. I I think I went to a very traditional, my curriculum was very traditional, which was not unusual in the 70s, but it was, you know, we started with- Where were you at again? I went to, my undergrad was at Leeds University. Right, right, yes. Uh Um, And basically we started in Anglo-Saxon and went through chronologically Mm -hmm. to about, 1940 a little Mm -hmm. bit of modernism at the end um Mm -hmm. and had single author courses on you know milton chaucer shakespeare
0: oh my god um
2: so like you know i know the canon really well yes um and i guess i mean one of the things when i first came to pace in the early 80s i used to always say like this the u.s has a pretty significant literature of his own and yet we hardly ever seem to teach any of it why is that
0: and right
2: yeah, it was all very English English um, but right. of course that's changed quite a bit now um, mm-hmm. but I think in the last few years what I've found difficult was to get any sense of ac- an actual curriculum it was more like it's a collection of courses and it could be arranged in almost any sequence. Hmm. So, you know, you would teach I would teach a course on the Bronte say, to mm-hmm. people who didn't really know when the Victorian era was, mm-hmm. or I would teach 20th century literature to people who didn't really have any sense of, you know, what had led up to that, like mm-hmm. what were those writers working against,
0: mm-hmm. which
2: which is understandable, but it and it's and it's a difficult thing to uh, to accommodate everything that a whole department feels is important
0: mm-hmm. uh, for
2: people to know but i mean my i guess my guiding principle is always just teaching people to read read in the sense of like read in an engaged way read critically hmm. and not like every you know not worry about whether you like it or not mm-hmm. but be able to talk about something even if you didn't like it <laughs> you know yeah um and I, right. and I i just i i don't know i the irony is the last couple of years, like since I decided to leave, I would mm-hmm. say like the last three semesters were really great <laughs> I had really good classes and really yeah. you know, good students. Um, and, and I always like the students as people. I think that, you know, they're just very unprepared um, mm. so You had to kind of bring them up to speed at the beginning of every class. You couldn't really build on anything. Mm-hmm. you you couldn't assume anything you just sort of start from scratch which is why i invented this class called intro to literary studies Mm because it just dawned on me one day like we all in the english department we all assume that someone else has taught the students to do x but in fact nobody has because we're all assuming somebody else did it so i said we we need to kind of codify this and say okay if you're majoring in this discipline Mm -hmm. this is kind of the you know these are the tools these are the This is the language that Mm -hmm. you need to be familiar with. These are the traditions, Mm -hmm. you know. um, I mean, even the idea that there are different critical approaches to something was a Mm -hmm. revelation to, you know. Yeah. A feminist reading is very different than a Marxist reading or it could cross or, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. it happens to be.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there are no TAs at PACE. It's just directly from the professors to the students in a much smaller setting. Um, You know, UCLA is a lot bigger. It's the public school. There are hundreds of students per class. And so the TAs take on about 40 students. And all of us as TAs, we just accept the fact that there will be more than 30% of students who have never written a paper before. So every single section I've ever led included a few weeks of just how to write a thesis, how to write a paper, you know, just basic stuff. We just kind of weave it in. Yeah. And, you know, it's, we're in a quarter system, so the weeks fly by. They're 10 weeks. Mm-hmm. One and two of those weeks are like midterm, final. So they release it by, and we have to make sure that they know how to do it because we're going to grade them on them. You know, yeah. so yeah, yeah that there's a lot of pressure and burden, I guess, when it comes to that. And it also, it's like students who come to uh, an institution, like they come from all different kinds of backgrounds. Like you know, English might be a second language. They, they might have been like living in Sweden all their lives, like, whatever it is, um, or you know, they just went to like a shitty school, like a shittier yeah. school in a shittier district. Yeah,
2: that was that was very difficult. You'd have like. 20 25 kids in a class and a really broad range of everything ability
0: background yes. uh-huh.
2: experience and yeah there were some who already knew they've been very well trained at their high uh-huh. schools and they you know they come in knowing how to do college and right. then others who really really have no uh, who are very, who are smart but just don't yet know the the methodologies and the language um,
0: uh-huh
2: it was, I mean, a lot of my teaching was general ed courses, you know, the, those 211, two, you know, the lit courses that everyone had to take, writing courses. So right. I, I quite liked having that, you know, you'd have like 20 students and 10 different majors. Mm-hmm. And that could be quite interesting unless they were really resistant and kind of annoyed that they had to do this because you know, <laughs> they didn't see the point. Then it, then it can be quite weird.
0: <laughs> oh, that's interesting. When they say that, they don't see the point of reading something or writing something. I don't know. Like, I guess...
2: It's a very utilitarian kind of, you know. Yeah? How can I use this? I yeah,
0: but I, you know system. you know what's hilarious? I felt that exact same way about math. <laughs> you know, when I was learning trig, like, <laughs> I, I was good at math until trig, like, geometry and trig and, you know, calculus, like... When it hit geometry, I just, they lost me completely. I started fa- getting very low grades in math. I was good up to algebra. And then after that, it was like, none of this makes sense. I can't understand it, you know. Um, but that was my constant question to my teachers. I was like, how is like this cosine theta business going to help me?
2: <laughs> well, you didn't want to be an engineer, I guess you would have known. But yeah, that I mean, that is not completely facetious for me. That's kind of why I never went to a American university because I knew I'd have to study all those other subjects. And I really was just crap at everything in school, except for English. They didn't
0: force you to do those things when you were well
2: until you could, until you were about 15 and then you could drop them. Cause English education yeah. is like a, like a pyramid. It's like, you're constantly narrowing oh. until your last two years of high school. You're usually doing like just three subjects. And it's usually, you know, it, my best friend at school was very unusual. He did double math and English but he was wow. a real outlier. Usually you yes. were like in the humanities or you were in the sciences. Mm-hmm. Um, so I failed math. I retook it. I failed it worse the second time. I, mm-hmm. uh, I just <laughs> moved on. And yeah. I, yeah, I don't, I don't understand math at all, but
0: I didn't Yeah. It. And I would go to the library at Pace because at Pace Library closed at 11 and I would just study for my GREs there for like six hours. And I studied my ass off. <laughs> i still did re- i got like 20th percentile for my math like it was just so bad and i studied like crazy i just couldn't i can't my i can't figure it out it's a look language now, yeah well look at me now i'm you know sitting in my closet you know fucking i you know like you it's it's interesting to me how you know you've done the whole like you've been in in this great school for like, for as long as I've been alive. And, you know, you have a life for yourself. You have a name, you have a career, you know, and yet you still feel this, um, anxiety, like going into the, the next phase of your life. And it seems like that shit never ends, you know? No, it
2: doesn't. Mm. And I think, I mean, the, I guess my kind of trite response to that is that if you're complacent, then you're probably not going to get much done because I I feel like the anxiety is just, I mean, I, I know myself well enough now, for example, like my writing process always involves a great deal of anxiety. And like, I go through these stages that I recognize now. And like, I'll say, I'll write something. And then the first stage is like, why the hell did I ever say that? The second is uh, there's no way I can do this. It's impossible. I'm going to tell them I can't do it. And then the third stage is like, oh, you know, it's like really painful, but I'm kind uh-huh. of seeing some way to do this. And then I kind of break through and think, okay, now I know how to do the work. And I've got to still do the work, but at least I can see that I can do it. Um, right. I said to someone the other day, I really don't like writing,
0: mm-hmm. but I
2: really love having written. I love mm-hmm. the feeling of finishing something and just like. Yes. I mean that in a way, it's been kind of weird with this book because, you know, I submitted it at the end of twenty nineteen, yeah, and then you know it's like a year and a bit later it came out, Mm -hmm. and by then I was like, I can't really remember what I said, and Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I've had this odd experience of people, Mm -hmm. you know, most of my writing has been on Virginia Woolf, and I think it's it's almost true to say, I pretty much know everyone who's read my work like Mm -hmm. I mean I know them I know who they are or at least I know their names whereas Mm -hmm. with this it's like out there in the world and strangers are reading it and I don't know who they are and it's kind of
0: interesting
2: it's kind of disconcerting in some ways because I want to connect with them and say well can I can I help you with anything can I explain something that you're maybe not understanding
0: so you'd say like no I
2: don't think the anxiety ever goes away it's kind of productive I mean I I think it's 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 like people, I've read about, you know, performers who still feel mm-hmm. stage right and yet you'd never oh, yeah. know it to see
0: them. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: But it's, yeah. But if you're blasé about it, then you're probably not invested <sighs> in it.
0: Norm Macdonald, who is a comic I love, um, he's admired by a lot of comics because of his, like, brilliant sense of timing. Like, he's so effortless with timing. Yeah. It's just, it seems like... He just kind of just wandered into the room and just said the thing very naturally and organically, but all of it is premeditated. And he, you know, he, he complains about nerves. You know, he's like, it's every, before every show, before every stage time, I always feel terrible nerves. And I was like, what, you know? I
2: think, I mean, it probably is a cliche, but I think like, comics usually have pretty tortured people right <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> but what i started doing was um instead of saying oh this this is nervousness i just said oh this is adrenaline i just kind of rephrased it or reframed it i'm like this is all yeah. adrenaline like i'm feeling the adrenaline yeah. before i'm getting up on stage and i just and that helps. yeah and and um I- yeah no i used to also get like like arm, not pain, but like a numbness or like this mm. feeling on my left arm before stage time. And um, now that's gone away, but I used to get it when I first started. It was well, like a lot. Yeah.
2: It could have been a heart attack coming up.
0: <laughs> Maybe, mild heart attack. <laughs> but yeah. it's
2: true. I mean, in a, in a way it's similar to how I like, I, because I recognize now that part of, what I always go through when I'm writing something is the feeling that I cannot possibly do it. It's like, yes. I recognize that now. So I, it's like it, at some level of my brain, I say to myself, you always go through this, right. you know, you'll, you'll get over it, even though it doesn't feel like you can. It's just um, part of the process now. It's just part of the process. So, and I recognize that. So it's like when it happens, I kind of am anticipating it almost.
0: But how long it's did still, it take for you to. a real
2: feeling. Well, kind of, it depends what it is, but you know, it can.
0: But like, at what point, like, cause you've been writing your whole life basically. Yeah. So like at what age were you like, okay, this is, I do this every time. So now I just know this is just part of the journey of my yeah. writing.
2: I think it's fairly recent that I have recognized that. Really? Um, I mean, recent, like the last 10, 10 years or so. Okay. Yeah.
0: Cause oh, I do, you know, and the,
2: the the other thing, and I don't know if you ever watch a you know, playback of yourself, but sometimes if I have, for some reason, uh, I need to reread something that I mm-hmm. wrote a while back. I read it and I'm amazed. It's like, how did I do that? How did I, how did I actually? I can't imagine doing that. You know, like I read it and I kind of. It's not like I forget that I did it, but it's I read it and I feel very distanced. It's almost mm-hmm. like I can look at it objectively and think, oh. Yeah, it actually makes sense, and, mm-hmm. and then I think I couldn't do that today, but I probably mm. could because I'd have to go through <laughs> that whole process. And I think <laughs> that's something. I mean, that I had a very difficult time with this biography until, and I I don't remember quite when it happened, but there was a day when I real, you know, I I spent so many hours just in despair, scribbling mm. on legal pads, and just mm-hmm. feeling like it's all impossible. Until one day I realized that what I was trying to do was hold the entire thing in my head.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then I said to myself, you're an idiot, like mm-hmm. break it into bits. Mm-hmm. You don't need to, you know, and I had this very conscious moment of like, oh, I could just write this piece
0: mm-hmm. and
2: do that separately. And I don't have to worry about how it fits. I can, I can make the, the connection later when it's mm-hmm. there. But mm-hmm. that was a real breakthrough yeah sometime during the process of writing the biography that i just i remember it was probably in this room thinking to my like the light coming on and thinking like yeah. you don't have to because i was trying to kind of see how does each part relate to every other part and it right. was impossible because it yeah. like, <laughs> it's yeah it's fifty thousand words so
0: yeah no those kinds of moments those eureka moments are like that's problem solving for a writer you know <laughs> that's and those are important moments right but it
2: wasn't like it it wasn't the problem that i recognized Mm -hmm. in the sense that i hadn't i hadn't set out to solve that problem right but at some level i was you know i was being held back held back by that problem yeah and yeah it just kind of dawned on me oh that's what i need to do
0: it's like part of us knows like what the problem is it's just it's not on the forefront of my mind it's like not in our consciousness and we can't think it into words and name it and then do something about it actively. But it's like, subconsciously, you did understand or see this problem and you were working it out anyway. Like, did you do something different? Or like, did you get up and drink a glass of water? Like, (laughs) was there something that took place that made you come to this realization at all? Or was it just like you were working in the flow and then you're like, okay, here it is.
2: I think it was just, it was literally like a light coming on. I just kind of had this revelation like, oh, I can just work on this little piece. Mm -hmm. I can work on this year or this Mm -hmm. relationship. And it doesn't have to all fit perfectly now. Right. And really, what I, you know, I sometimes, I'm not a very regular like journal keeper. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I like to do is kind of set up a dialogue with myself, like I mm-hmm. do a Q&A. and a
0: mm-hmm. And one of the things
2: I often will say to myself is say, well, okay, imagine that you're a student sitting in your office. What are you saying to them? And I'm like, always, like, break it down into parts. Don't let it overwhelm you. You know, you don't right. have to. It's not, it's not like taking a Polaroid. You don't have to press the shutter and, like, everything all is there all at once. Yes. It's gradual. And it's also... It's more like, you know, I say to, I mean, I used to say like, you know, do you know how a movie is made? It's not, Mm -hmm. it's not like the first thing you see on the screen was the first thing they shot. (laughs) That might've been the last thing, but it's like somebody put it all together when all the bits were available. So I think it was something like that. It was just like Mm. telling myself to do what I, you know, imagining myself as, coming to my office and saying i'm stuck yeah yeah and so just, you, you know, coached yourself cogner. with
0: your own advice yeah. kind of yeah yeah oh it's it's wild isn't it like we have the advice <laughs> we have the answers but we don't listen to it ourselves oh, no. we can well, handle the them out analogy all day. i
2: make is it's like you know if someone i care about has a pain i'm like go to the doctor right Whereas for me Myself, it's like that's yeah, probably nothing.
0: Never, yeah. <laughs> My foot is rotting off. It's fine. I never, I, I didn't like that foot. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. It can go. Like
2: it'll, it'll heal itself. Somehow. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but I think yeah. it's, it was kind of to me it was kind of similar. It's like we're all hypocrites.
0: <laughs> we are. We are. That's why you know. It's like like I'm becoming I'm becoming the thing that I didn't want to become when I was leaving New York, which is. I'm becoming like that California kook that is. Yeah. yeah.
2: Can I just interrupt, Grace? Like, Mm -hmm. is this the
0: podcast? Yeah, this is the podcast. Oh, okay. So you're just gonna
2: like pull pieces out of this and make something? (laughs) It's, It's very scary. Because I'm you know being very you yeah, you
0: you (laughs) like uh you like controlled environments, yes. Mm, You like um under you like an itinerary, an agenda. You you like schedule and order. Yes, I do. I like I like those things too. But I'm in
2: my desk is covered in lists.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, I made a list this morning, yeah. And I wrote you in at five PM. (laughs) That's what I did. Um, No, I, I, I'm trying to undo a lot of that right now. See, like, I'm when when you said we're all hypocrites, like, I completely agree, because, you know, it's like judgment is usually the thing that we're the we judge ourselves the most with, right? Like any projected external judgment is like, for instance, like I was dealing with the word stupid last week. I was like, this word stupid, like, what does it mean? It just means I think they're stupid, you know, because they don't know the thing that I know. Is that stupidity? You know, what is stupidity? What is stupid? You know, I was thinking about this because um, this woman, like I was listening to her like meditation session, Tara Brock, and she was like, most of our society in a capitalist world emphasizes the critical thinking, the analytical thinking, the hard sciences, the STEM fields, that's what they uphold and praise. So she was like, imagine how many people in the world feel stupid because they are not oriented in that way. And I was like, oh my God, like I feel so emotional right now. (laughs) And I realized I think of myself, excuse me, as stupid. Like I realized that that's a core belief of mine. I think I'm a fucking moron. You know, and um, it doesn't mean that I am, it just means that like I was made to feel that way and that I, I've come to believe that that is who I am. Like it, it's just like in my subconscious, embedded there, like it's like uh, unmovable. And that is in spite of everything, right? Like great undergraduate education, Fulbright master's phd and i still am like you said it yourself you were like i'm an idiot why don't i break it up right it's like it's it's a meaningless word actually
2: as you're talking it's i i'm thinking how what came to my mind is how i'm and i think this is also quite common is like all the praise in the world means nothing compared to like the, the one mistake or the one person. Says, no, <laughs> yeah. think, well, like you yeah. said, like you're stupid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like uh, I, I spent four years working on this a book once and there's a, it's a edition of one of Wolf's novels. And when it was published, I found this like a typo.
0: Unforgivable, that was, right?
2: That was all I focused. Mm-hmm. It was like, it was so stupid. I thought, how oh. could I have missed that? Cause yeah. it's a, it's meant to be a scholarly edition of the book. So it's like, super carefully edited mm-hmm. and I went over it a thousand times.
0: Mm-hmm. I know
2: how it happened,
0: but yeah, yeah,
2: it, yeah. it's like, yes, it's like you cannot, well, it's interesting that you say that, you know, with your recent PhD and all your achievements and you, you know, you've published books and you've translated books, but you feel stupid because of a certain context. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that is something in ourselves, like mm-hmm. people who are like that. Cause yeah. I feel, it's like I'm very distrustful of praise yes kind you know I think and I used to I used to have that fantasy in the classroom that one day Mm -hmm. there would be a student who would just say yeah you're just full of shit you know you know what you're talking about and actually like call me on something but it I don't I could never really imagine what that might be right but it was this sort of not even a fear it was just like a fantasy I had that you know yeah. Someone will see through me, and I. Yeah. I, I always found that position of authority very uncomfortable because.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. But I think
2: what you said is it's it's about going back to what you said about the meditation person that you were listening to is mm-hmm. there is this emphasis on certain kinds of knowledge as being valued over <sighs> others.
0: The only reason why my brain is telling me that I'm a failure and I'm an idiot right now is because I'm hearing a lot of praise. And my Mm -hmm. brain will do everything it can to defend itself against that. Well, it's
2: also a defense against like, I think, you know, being found out for the fraud that you are, that we are. Yeah, we don't know anything. But then externally, of course, you know, someone would look at you, look at me and think, wow, you know, that, that is a success that an achievement I mean you yes think about how many students have this aspiration to publish a book or to translate something and you've done it and you will go on doing it it's you know it's it's all kind of relative when you do you know yeah. um Bo Burnham have you
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: I, yes. I have a feeling you probably don't like him right but, no he's very
0: talented he's I not just... my cup of tea I find him immensely talented though
2: yeah Uh, yeah his stagecraft is incredible just my kids have introduced me to him but when you were talking about you know suicide he's he's very funny about that
0: (laughs) yeah a lot of comics are funny about suicide because they think about it all the time yeah yeah
2: Mm. well and also it's it's like such a taboo thing but you know sometimes it kind of makes sense like all writers think about it i liked his line it was like i'd like to kill myself but like not permanently, just for like <laughs> yeah.
0: a year. And I think, yeah, no, that, that that makes that's a lot really of sense. good. That's really good. You no, know, Mark Mark Maron, who's a comic, I love. I love his podcast more. But he says, like, you know, whenever I thought about suicide, I'd be like, yeah, but like, you know, I still have to get back at that guy, you know. So like, <laughs> yeah. like a sense of vindictiveness keeps yeah, him alive, keeps go him going. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, like, um, but I I hear what you're saying, and it's like interesting to me how you know you know, you're somebody I consider a teacher, like a mentor, you know, you're somebody that I, I look up to in a lot of ways. In fact, like your classes, I took two of your classes, you know, like the personal essay class and uh, the wolf seminar. Oh, and I, t- I think I took one more, but um, yeah, like I, I always loved your feedback. Like you were very um good at giving feedback and like kind of noting like a specific thing that, like a student is good at, you know, like mm-hmm. you're like, oh, you're very good at, you know, at like capturing emotion. You know, that was like one note that I still remember, and oh, I was like, oh, okay, like, good. yeah, I was like, I'll I'll stick with that. You know, I'll kind of intuit yeah. using that, using my emotion as a navigation tool. Then, you know, that's something I wouldn't have thought of unless I received that feedback. You know, yeah. and I think in that in that regard, professors and teachers are invaluable, right? Like to uh any society you know like really to tell them like oh this is something you're good at so stick with that because that's not something that we see on our own all we see is the negative voices in our heads (laughs) telling us to go off ourselves that's all we hear and see you know yeah and i and i loved your wolf seminar because in that class you know we read a lot of books like whole books, which was like, you know, for an undergraduate, it's like, well, we're going to read a whole, like a bunch of whole books, like this uh, semester. Um, of course, when you're a grad student, it's like, we have to read like five books this week, right? But uh, I really, like to this day, it's like a f- book that's been very influential. My favorite book in that course was Three Guineas. And I love uh, that book so much because, you know, Wolf was so good at articulating the necessity of feminism mm-hmm. you know and the hypocrisy of the patriarchy, like she was just very good at articulating that and illustrating that very clearly, and it just like you know that kind of aw- like woke the feminist in me really that book do you still did you still teach that yeah, book
2: i did yeah the, the, my very last class was a wolf seminar um, last mm-hmm. fall, and I did teach that and it was it was great because there were some students who had sort of signaled early on that they thought, you know, Wolf's feminism was very white and very passé. And I, Mm -hmm. and I said, just kind of, let's just bear with it. And, (laughs) you know, and I said, you know, she's writing in the 1930s and clearly there are limitations, but you know, rather than, rather than see what her deficiencies are, is there, you know, let's read her and see what she's saying in that context. And also, is there anything, you know salvageable right. re- worthwhile now exactly. and I think I think pretty much everyone in the class was very receptive yeah at the end it was that was good and yeah we read a lot of books um yes I I I organized that class into sort of clusters because that was one thing about teaching on zoom was I did way more preparation and work than I would ever do because in a classroom yeah. you can not I was going to say you can wing it, but I mean that you yeah. can kind of respond on the fly to things. Mm-hmm. You can move mm-hmm. very smoothly from, you know, one part of a conversation mm-hmm. to another. And you can say, oh, well, mm-hmm. you know, we'll dwell on that and we'll pick up that next time. Yes. But I felt like with the remote classes, when everyone's lives was, you know, they were quite um, uncertain that I wanted to structure it also so that people who, for whatever reason, might have to drop out for a couple of weeks we'll be able to pick right back up and find out you know they would know where they were so so I had these I don't know if I'm going to remember them but it was like war women Mm. I can't remember the other clusters but I so the works were all sort of jumbled Mm -hmm. up in different orders and I had like two weeks where we would read maybe a novel and some short stories and some critical Mm -hmm. essays and then like three guineas was with you know a much older piece or so yeah. it, was, it was kind of fun, um, yeah. And and of course, everyone is in their own room, on their own. So <laughs> it, was, it was odd. but it, it's yeah. The thing about teach, I think going back to what I was saying at the beginning, is that feeling of having sort of lost my way as a teacher is like there are moments like what you just said is very lovely to hear, and you know the other students who've said. They remember things from certain classes mm-hmm. or things I said or discussions we had. Mm-hmm. And that's all great and, mm-hmm. of course, makes it very worthwhile. But it was overall I, I started – and this is kind of connected to what you were saying about the devaluing of the humanities. It was like you feel like you're just sort of in this vacuum where you think this is important and you're trying to, you know, convey that mm-hmm. to other people. But there's no real support institutionally or, you know, that you see just everything – dwindling and resources being put to all kinds of other things um
0: well, what do you think the answer is to that then
2: well i think one thing and this i've been talking in my own like wolf community a lot about this is is there's a there's a real disjunction between the academy and the the intellectual world outside i mean people do read a lot i think there are plenty of smart people who love to read and talk about ideas Mm -hmm. and i think academics have just stopped talking to them and we just sort of talk to each other (laughs) and a lot of it is to do with the language that we use which is i mean i i actually enjoy high theory yeah i treat it i treat it almost like a hobby it's like this little kind of thing that me and some aficionados can do and talk about and Mm you know when but I still recognise it's 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 kind of humorous when people talk about interrogating the intersection. But I'm like, well, you're not mm. really interrogating it, are you? You're just exploring it or asking a question.
0: Right. Maybe. Yeah. Um,
2: but the language that has become a kind of code of entry to that club, yeah, I think that can be that can be very um, off-putting to people who just want to
0: read, read something without
2: being made to feel stupid. <laughs>
0: The, the, I think that's because a huge point. Yeah. First of all, I think that's something that's changing. Like right now, like I'm transferring my dissertation into my first book, right? And we we were given this book by her last name's Hag. I can't remember her first name, but she wrote a book called Revise. Like I think Yale University Press published it. And I'm I'm having a tough time with the book, but one of the things, the first chapter was like get rid of jargon. It's like you want your book to be accessible. So remember, like, you know, reading, I don't know, like Judith Butler. It's like, fucking, it's like, oh, let me read the most impossible thing, like write in an impossible way. Then you're going to get a tenure track job. Like it's been like that. It's like the more obscure you are, it's like, oh, maybe he's like onto something that I just don't know, you know? So, but now it's the opposite. It's like write clearly and directly and write in a way that accommodates the reader you know so that's that's sort of changing like right now as we speak and the other thing is it's God. it's very it's also very political and i was just like man we on the on the left we progressives have really you know designed a kind of wall for ourselves and we're sitting on the top and really congratulating ourselves for knowing words like intersectionality mm. and blah 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 right like it's like yeah, <laughs> or even words like, cool. you know, toxic positivity, right? It's like what? It's like, yeah. do you know how to talk to your uncle who has no legs because he lost them in the war and is a hardcore Republican? Do you know how to talk to him? Yeah. Yeah. You know? And the reason why is because like they don't want to feel like idiots when right. they're talking to somebody who is a progressive. And it's like we well, that is something we have to check, I feel. But at the same time, there is the importance of language and yeah. what language does in order to communicate complex ideas and whatnot. Well,
2: that's, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I'm kind of hesitant to just say, oh, jargon's all bad and it's, you know. Exactly. It, it's, yes. It's because I do think, you know, complex ideas sometimes demand complex expressions. Yes, absolutely. Um, but there is a kind of in-crowd aura to some of the language mm-hmm. that we use, which I do think mm-hmm. it creates a circle. It, that can't be penetrated by outsiders and i'm
0: and, hearing but what's, more and yeah. more from
2: academics of like yes we've yes. got to be able to talk to people more and we sh- i mean as teachers we should be able to do that certainly
0: yes yes and uh you know the great irony is like let's say for instance like we do use a word like intersectionality which isn't that big of a word you know it's it's out there yeah. but like let's say we use it in a book and like we want to explain it right add mm-hmm. like no, let's use the word neoliberalism, right? Let's see, we want to use the word neoliberal, put it in a book, but you know, we want to explain it for the reader to accommodate them. So we'll add a footnote. Is the reader gonna read that fucking footnote? No, they're not, yeah, just right? Explain it. Just explain
2: <laughs> it in the text. Yeah. Well, that, right, right. You know, intersectionality is a good because, like you and I, if we hear that word, we know because we've read a lot, all those books. But yeah. for someone new or outside of that field. You don't need to use that word. You can just sort of talk about, oh, you know, it used to be that people would rank like what's worse, racism or sexism, but you know, now people think more about how you can't really separate them, and that, you know, just explain it, you know, and that is called, and you know, academics call that intersectionality. But it's it's like this whole huge thing about critical race theory. It's so frustrating because it's such an easy thing to attack because it sounds like just a bunch of, you know, woke jargon, but actually, yes. you know, of course it's, it's motivated by a sense of history and, you know, being transparent about yeah what has really happened. Yeah. But yeah, I, I agree. I think there's this sort of shooting ourselves in the foot on the left has, has become something that's pervasive.
0: Can we talk about your book before we wrap up? Yeah. Um, we t- sure. You talked about it a little bit, but I want to hear more about it.
2: I kinda of told the story of this in the somewhere. it was literally yeah. it for years, you know, I'm like where I'm sitting now, I'm looking at all my like Wolf and Bloomsbury re- books. Yeah. Uh-huh. And every so often I would think, Oh, it's really weird there's no biography of Clive because there's biographies of like all the mm. other people. Sure. Um and so one day I thought that and I thought, I'll oh, just Google biography yeah. of Clive Bell and something popped up as mm-hmm. forthcoming but like years, years in the future on Amazon. So I have a friend in publishing in London. I emailed her and I said, do you know anything about this? And she said, yeah, I can find out for you. And it turned out that it was contracted in like 2004, but the guy never delivered the manuscript, but it was in like the internet system. So it was announced as a forthcoming book, like, but never came out. Hmm. So then I, I just thought, you know, that, that would be kind of interesting to see if I could do that. So I started yeah. just asking around, and, and then I, I, I know, you know, people. Because I naively thought, oh, I've worked on Wolf all my life, so this won't be much of a stretch. Mm. <laughs> so anyway, so that's how I got into it. It was kind of filling a gap, but then I really had to teach myself a lot about art, which was interesting, but, you know, a big learning curve um
0: that is a big one he's the
2: really the the last sort of major bloomsbury figure that didn't have a biography so and Mm. um, as i was writing it i began to realize that because of that because there hadn't been much known about him on his own Mm -hmm. i needed to sort of lay the foundation for it's a very traditional biography in the sense Mm. that it takes him from the beginning to the end of his life um and if people want to go into that and maybe develop one aspect or look at more you know they could do that but i felt like i didn't want to write a biography with a particular angle hmm. it was just sort of telling his story
0: right like here it is this was his life
2: yeah, yeah. this and is it's this been person. kind of nice because a lot of people who've read it have said oh you know i had no idea that he you know, like he came to the US in the nineteen fifties, and mm-hmm. and he had, you know, he had a lot of affiliations beyond the beyond just being Virginia Woolf's brother-in-law and Vanessa's yeah. husband. You know, he kind of struck out on his own.
0: Why do you think people read biographies?
2: Hmm. I think that um, they read biographies because they like gossip.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: I mean, it's such a popular genre now. I have a really hard time with it, though. I, I ended up being quite anti-biography by the end because
0: mm. I
2: think a, one thing I was really committed to was not saying anything that I didn't have evidence for or a source for, not really evidence. but Because mm-hmm. when I'm reading a biography, sometimes it irritates me when the biographer says something like, Grace must have been feeling X. And I think, well,
0: mm.
2: maybe, projection. but I don't you know. Um, unless she actually says that in a letter somewhere or I was reading one a while ago and it said, you know, Simone de Beauvoir crossed the room and put her glass down on the windowsill. And and I thought, okay, well, how do you know that? (laughs) Maybe, maybe she describes it in a diary or a letter or something. But so that was one thing I wanted to only say things I would, did not want to speculate. I just wanted to say what was there. And that is something when I'm reading a biography, I mean, I, I really enjoy a good biography. Like Mm -hmm. I just read a biography of Adrienne Rich, which I really enjoyed. And Mm. Mm -hmm. um, I just finished a book called Ninth Street Women, which is about Mm -hmm. um, American women artists of the 50s uh, Mm -hmm. who are abstract expressionists. And that was really fantastic. Mm. Um, But sometimes I'll read one and I just think, you know, you've made a lot of this up (laughs) (laughs) in the sense that you just could have invented it to make it more readable. And cut right. corners or, you know, conflated things that were actually separated by 18 months. Um, but I think people <laughs> read biographies for the same reason we like to get to know. You know, we just we're interested in other people. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah.
2: My favorite kind are the ones that are um, biographies that give a sense of the, the context in which the person lived. You know, not not just about their inner life, but actually what was going on in the world around them.
0: Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like the wars or the yeah. laws or the government or okay. Yeah. yeah. But I I like that you uh <laughs> did say like well it is gossip, you know it's it's a yeah, form of tabloid. All, it's... all knowledge
2: is gossip. <laughs> <It's>
0: like... <laughs> That's an interesting theory. I like that theory actually. Yeah. It's like. It's like No matter how much we abstract things and project them and turn them into this intellectual discourse you know at the end of the day it's just like i mean we want to be yeah like we want to be recognized you know we want to be heard we want to express it's really all it is and then hope as you say hope that somebody reads it somebody catches it you know that it resonates yeah i think
2: getting away from the idea that you know we have we have the answer or the i mean i know this is a very cliche kind of post-structuralist uh-huh. thing like you know the truth with the capital t uh-huh. it's, and and i think that's you know going back to what you were saying about three guineas of wolves before it's like this one of the things that attracted me to her is her sort of it's this provisionality it's like let's think of it this way it's not like saying you must think this right. but like let's turn it around and look at it this way. What do you think yeah. of that? And it's, yeah. it's sort of dialogic. It's not you know, didactic.
0: Yes. Um,
2: and that's the kind of writing I like best. Mm. Um, and I think that the, the genre of biography, I think one of the things that frustrates me about it is that sense of um, being told this is what the person was like rather than this is my version of that person. And maybe that, I mean, that's, I can't think of another writer than Wolf who has, I mean, she must have about 30 biographies or biographical works. It's as if, you know, people just keep turning her life around in the light and it catches different facets. Um, so.
0: Yeah. But one can say that about any individual, right? Like, I mean, that's any yeah. person really, you know? Um, I like how you say it's my version of this person. That's this biography on Bell. Yeah. I think that's how it is for for everybody. Like any author, like any filmmaker who makes a biopic, you know, it's their version of it, their interpretation.
2: Because inevitably you're going to leave, you have to leave things out. I remember there was a a point I got to where I was really struggling with writing it. And -hmm. I would say to people, ask me any question about Clive Bell and I can tell you, like, where he was on this day or what, but to kind of determine how to make that a narrative,
0: mm-hmm. that's
2: really difficult. Cause obviously you can't just write a list of, you know, all right. the days, you know, in this like
0: yeah, no. millions
2: of words long. <clears throat> so you have to make selections and you have to emphasize some things and de-emphasize others. So yeah, it could, it could be done. And I mean, I would probably do it entirely differently if right. I started it now, you know, I could do it all again and it would be a different book. But, um, and people who read parts of it when I was writing it used to get frustrated with me because they would say, "Well, what do you think?" And I would say, "It's yeah. irrelevant. I,
0: yeah, you know, it's
2: not about me. It's it's about yeah. my subject. So yeah, you know, wait wait for my autobiography, then I'll tell you what I think.
0: Right. But to them, you're the you're the author. Right. Right. And so yeah, they, they want to be kind
2: of guided in what should I be thinking about this. Exactly. Like, nope, yes. That's that's up to you. I right. You that's you not my business. The material. Mm-hmm. And you do something yeah. with it, yeah.
0: Boundaries, and, yes. And yes.
2: The, you know, that's to me that that's very familiar to like teaching a writer like Virginia Woolf, because the frustration that many students experience with a modernist writer like that is like, what am I supposed to focus on? <laughs> What's the point? What's important? And I would say, well, that's up to you. It's it's going to be right. Different. It's going to be different now than if you read it ten years from now. It's going to be different if you're somebody else. So
0: she's a very rich writer like yeah the way she writes is very rich and um i remember asking you this like when i came back down from a mushroom trip i was like wolf must have taken some shit what was she (laughs) taking and you were just like well she was on a lot of medication and some of them were probably hallucinogenic and i'm like oh yeah and i was just kind of like why d- i was kind of i was like why didn't any of my professors at pace when i was reading all these modernists and like you know learning about existentialism and going to moma and like looking at modernist art and da, 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 like why didn't anybody ever say that drugs were a big part of this you know like i feel like that should have been said almost it's like on the one hand yeah like the ego gets obliterated when you see Nuclear weapons or mass destruction, like with these kinds of weaponry, okay, fine, yeah. But you know, I feel like a lot of these artists had other substances that were able yeah, to. Mortis
2: well, Huxley was very into that. Mescaline. Yes. Let's yes. See. Yeah. Clive Bell's granddaughter, who's a writer herself, she said she was very happy to learn that her grandfather used coke. <laughs> Because I have reference to that. (laughs) So that was kind of cool. Yeah.
0: Not my drug of choice at all, but you know, it does it is known to induce psychosis, I hear, for people who are addicts. Um but yeah, I I was just like that I feel like that should have been mentioned. But um
2: T. S. Elliot, he used drugs.
0: Yeah. And it's like it's almost as if as if like, you know, once you see that other side like what they saw or went to where they went then everything that they all their products make sense all the things that they Mm -hmm. created make sense you know like i was like reading the waves i was like now i can read the waves whereas for like 15 years i was trying to and i couldn't
2: i don't think wolf actually needed drugs though. i mean she she did take a lot of medications but i think her mind was such that yeah she had uh, a visionary sense
0: she was already kind of, yeah, touched yeah. by this stuff, or the was already open. We'll put it that yeah. way. Yes. No, I do yes. Think that, yeah. But one thing I will say is like, you know, you're a good example of a man who is a feminist, because increasingly in our society, uh, there are men who declare, I'm a feminist and all the women go running the other way because they're like, he's a, <laughs> he's a sick creep, you know?
2: Like Andrew Cuomo.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like, the reason why I say you're a good feminist, like you're a good example of a feminist is because you read about women all the time, all the time, you know? And it's like, that to me is a feminist. It's like, mm-hmm. I I consider women interesting human beings, worthy of reading about and writing about like that is like all right you know well,
2: that, that could be a whole other podcast like my how did i end up given my background as a jesuit boarding school boy <laughs> reading virginia wolf and spending my life writing about her yes <laughs> it's like what is yeah what is the meaning of my trajectory but thank you that was very
0: nice to yeah you. yeah we'll, we'll wrap up here it's always a pleasure talking to you
2: thanks grace it's great talking to you and lovely to see you too